I think. Um, okay. okay. Um, well, let's, I want to warm you up even more with a really simple question. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, what I, I told you that my, my concern is for the intersection of theology and then life the way it really is. And, uh, and so I know that on this subject in particular, you have, lots, you have a range of life experience, right? Yes, being I do. Being a celibate monk and being a married man and a father of seven. Um, so just as we get into this, before we really get into what the Bible says about this subject, um, you know, talk to me, in it, you know, tell me, tell my listeners, you know, how you've learned in the long course of your life, both studying and living with Scripture, you know, why we should even look to these ancient texts that were written in a completely different society for guidance on how we should live, you know, family and marriage today in modern times when the whole thing clearly has changed. It certainly has changed. (laughs) And that's one of the challenges to reading the ancient texts. I was talking to students yesterday about a passage in... Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, about the veiling of women uh-huh. and all of the scholarly discussions about what's going on there. And simply getting across those cultural hurdles of what it meant to be family in antiquity, and above all, gender construction in antiquity, um, and the con- linkages between gender construction and sexuality are very, very complex. So it's not a simple matter to be reading these ancient texts um, in as normative and as guiding mm-hmm. our lives. It's relatively simple, though diffi- you know, s- though uh, involved, to read them as historical sources or as cultural texts. That's fun and interesting because it's other. But when we try to bring them home and to think about how do our lives correspond to them, how can we imagine our own lives while imagining Scripture simultaneously or convergently, it's difficult. Why do we do it? The same texts that um, confuse us are also the ones that give us life. Uh, the same texts that provide inadequate, partial, and sometimes distorted witnesses on how we are actually to carry out our lives are also witnesses to the realities that have brought us together in the first place. So Christians gather as church because of convictions which are written in these texts, but are also, above all, convictions that are confirmed by their own experience that Jesus is Lord, that we're caught up in a new creation, that something has changed, that transformation is possible. So these texts speak to those realities. And then we say, well, what else can they tell us? And then we begin to try to look at the quotidian things about real life that they talk about, and then we start to say, eww, right. there's the gap. <laughs> Right, like some of the things that we have the most trouble with, marriage. Stuff that we, (laughs) New Testament doesn't talk about a whole lot that we would like it to talk about, number one. Right. It is not like a Torah, which is fundamentally a system of law for a people. And it's still less like the Sharia in Islam, which describes pretty adequately how to run a state, how to run a people. The New Testament is a set of convictions to a religious experience and conviction within an intentional community um, in the first century. And so it doesn't talk about how should you educate people. It doesn't talk about how you should arrange yourself uh, politically uh, and so forth. As part of a tiny sect, as the literature of a tiny sect, it wasn't in a position to declare how we should arrange society. It would be a little presumptuous. Mm -hmm. It would be sort of like... uh, the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock and declaring uh, a foreign policy. <laughs> it's just, just, it wasn't on. 
so these writings um, don't talk about a lot of things we would like to talk about. What they do talk about, they talk about often um, contradictorily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something that I heard from you this week that I had not thought about before, and again, comparing Christian teaching on something like marriage and divorce and life and family to other traditions like mm-hmm. Islam and Judaism, is that while Judaism has Moses and, well, I mean, every patriarch I can think of in the, in the Hebrew Bible was a married man. Right. Uh, and there's lots of narrative about all kinds of marriage, including problems in marriage um, and the difficulty of that. And then Muhammad was a married man several times over. Very happily married. Very happily married. Uh, And Jesus gives us no model of leading a life which is at once holy and and has a a sexual component to it. Absolutely. It is is of fundamental importance. But we don't talk about that very much. No, it's not thought about a great deal. (laughs) Actually, interestingly, there's another issue in Christian theology similar to that, and that is that we really have no adequate theology of aging Hmm. because of Jesus dying young and violently, um, separated from his family, you know, childless, and all of these things. So uh, sort of a geriatric ministry in Christianity needs to learn from the actual elderly Hmm. what it means to to grow old in the Lord. Hmm. Um, and, And actually, I would say the same thing about marriage. The real tragedy in Christian theology about marriage is that it is tended to look only at the sacred texts. This is really important and has tended to ignore the experience of actual married people. I mean, Mm -hmm. a great deal of Christian theology was carried out by monks and celibates Mm -hmm. who quite literally didn't know who they're talking about. I wrote an article a couple of years ago in Commonweal magazine on the sex, uh, the the Pope and sex. And you're Catholic, let's... I am Roman Catholic and Mm -hmm. uh, critically loyal of my own tradition. And... uh, Pope John Paul II has has there's a quite a large collection of his talks over a several year period called Theology of the Body, and the my article in Commonweal was called the Disembodied Theology of the Body because John Paul II fancies himself to be a phenomenologist, so one would think a phenomenologist would be looking at real bodies and you know, paying attention to the way in which things actually happen and then trying to think theologically about that. But in fact, it it was just a very long set of meditations on Genesis and a handful of other texts in the New Testament without ever adverting to the experience of actual married people. Hey, there's something to be learned from from the experience of... People who've uh, been there. ...who've actually experienced these things, Mm -hmm. um, and again, in the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus doesn't give us what the New Testament doesn't give us because it is so focused on that experience. Where are we going to learn it? Well, as I suggested at the end of my talk, one way by default is to simply fall back into the original creation, right? Not the new creation, but basically just take all of those things in the Bible that affirm marriage, sex, and family in a sort of a straightforward way, Losing that eschatological and critical edge that Christian Christianity brings to that. Okay, well, talk talk about. You're right that you you can pluck out verses which affirm marriage. Absolutely. Um, but talk about about you know you you are someone who I think has studied the New Testament holistically, which I really appreciate in your work. And uh, talk about the holistically 
what is to be found there? <clears throat> On the subject of sex. On the subject of yeah, and sex, marriage, marriage and yeah. family. It's a, it's a whole collection of thoughts, isn't that's it? Cor- that's and, correct. And, and they go together. They're interrelated. Mm-hmm. And what really distinguishes the Christian collection, the New Testament canon, is this deeply conflictual character. Um, So on the one side, you have, let us say, with family. You have clear passages that affirm family and the household. Um, For example, in Paul's letters to his delegates, qualities of good parenting are qualifications for leadership within the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Young widows are to marry and uh, uh, raise their children and run households. So all of this is very affirming of family, and you can pick out those texts. On the other side, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. Right. You know, leave your wife yeah. and your husband and your children, by the way. Abandon them and come follow me. So just as... He's not really very pro-family, is he? Not I mean, pro-family. I've heard sense. lots of sermons in my life trying to massage that and interpret it so that yeah. it is palatable. Yeah. Again, this is the case of Christians tending to privilege one set of texts and ignoring the other set. Mm-hmm. And... All Christians do that. The question is, are they doing it with any degree of responsibility at all? I have to share a story with you on this very point. Uh, Many years ago, I gave a a talk at a conference called God Doesn't Like Families, and I basically wanted to to trace that stream in Scripture Mm -hmm. from Abraham on, right? Leave your family. Leave your home. Yes. Right? Yes. And running through the New Testament and suggesting God doesn't seem to be that interested in families, Um, or as a colleague of mine, Luther Smith, memorably said in a sermon one time, uh, what the Bible seems to say is that families are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And I was asked by a local parish if I would come give a talk on that subject. And I sent them the title, God Doesn't Like Families. I arrived in the church, I opened the bulletin, and it said, God Like Families. <laughs> so I began my presentation by saying, this is the problem. So they had misprinted your... <laughs> they had mis... Quite deliberately. They thought my title was very right. much too scandalous. God-like families. That's yeah. right. So that, you know, what we... And so clearly one problem within a kind, one version of Christianity is a kind of an idolatrous posture with regard to family. So that family is not only necessary, which all of us would, would acknowledge, but that it's also sufficient. Mm-hmm. And losing that edge, which is essential to the biblical tradition, the prophetic edge of moving beyond family, moving beyond kinship into a larger world, which is God's creation. Uh, but are those two things intention? Oh, How are they intention? Indeed, they are intention. So um, does that make it more difficult to be committed to your family, necessarily? That's an excellent question. And I think actually it, 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 it actually helps being committed in a more appropriate way. I think, for example, that good parenting does not have as its goal keeping kids at home. It's preparing them to be free to leave home and to step. So that a certain degree of distancing is required even to do the job. Mm -hmm. Uh, That if you cling too closely, you ruin them. Just as if you abandon them, you ruin them. Mm-hmm. So there is that tension. That's probably true in marriage, isn't it? As well? Exactly the truth. Giving the, other, giving the partner space is, is really important in, in order even to have intimacy. So mm-hmm. that if there's, no, if there's not really two persons there, you really can't have intimacy. So similarly, 
the draw outside the kinship system to serve a larger world, I suspect is um, a premise for really good commitment to the kinship Mm -hmm. system, to Mm -hmm. family. Um, Unless I see our family life as part of a larger ecology, the tendency is to make it idolatrous, to absolutize it. Right. And we've certainly done that, sorry, especially in our age with the nuclear family, right? I mean, it just gets tinier and tinier, and it is the center of the universe. Absolutely. And I think one of the great... I mean, we can, we can, one of the things that worries me about this conference, for example, is it's, I think the fix is in um, at some level. You know, that, I mean, how, could we, how could we really think critically about right. family? Now, there are some, like Anita Bernstein and others and Mark Jordan, who are bringing a, a critical edge to, yeah. the, to the notion of the biologically defined kinship system. Yeah, but, you know, they, they take it too far. Oh, right. So, I mean, what you're saying is you can you can affirm it and you can be critical at the same time. Yes, but and I'm also that saying the Bible this. Asks us to do that. Yes, but I'm also saying this. I mean, okay. I, I, it's helping these alternative forms of family that people are thinking about now. Mm-hmm. Also, provide us an opportunity to think about what is what is the essence of family itself, as opposed to what are the accidentals of family. So. Mm. Uh, just as belonging to a fictive kinship group like the church, mm-hmm. where you call each other brother and sister and you work together, or a, a, kinship, a fictive kinship system like a monastery, such as I belong to, you call each other brothers, um, is, enables one to think about what is, the, what is essential to family beyond biology, mm-hmm. beyond property, beyond... Um, Patrimony, right? So, so that what we can learn from these alternative families, adoptive families, for example, or homosexual families, or you know, various kinds of partnerships and covenanting, we can learn that all people need family in order to be human. All people need uh, all all families need structures of authority and ability to make decisions. They have to have structures for socialization of the young. These are essential to family in all cultures, but they can take on many forms. Mm. Well, also what I'm, I'm hearing when I, with, with what you've just described about the, the biblical witness and then what's happening now in our culture, is that also while family is affirmed absolutely and uh, in Scripture, it's also often something that's chosen, right? I mean, you're saying it's not just something that you're, you're given and you stay with that whatever, right? I mean, Abraham leaves home. Jesus and Paul both wrestle with how faith, how uh, finding Christianity might come between married partners. And they, and they both, you know, there's this, the tension of community, family and community. Right. And so that's maybe right. what we're simply... going through now is sort of a new version of that. Oh, I think that's exactly right. Right. And I think that one of the uh, – so that we can view our present societal situation of fatherless families. And in some ways, it really does represent a crisis, obviously. Um, homosexual families, uh, um, other kinds of groupings of people. We can regard that as a challenge to the family, a threat. Or we can regard it as a reminder of that, what I've called the sort of resurrection edge or new creation edge mm-hmm. or eschatological edge – 
which helps us understand that kinship and belonging in the human reality um, is a matter of social construction, and it is a matter of choice, even one's own family. Mm-hmm. I mean, one can be born into a biological family, obviously, many of us are, and leave it, and leave it behind, and hate it, and, and not for religious purposes. Okay. Just, just, we want, just want to get free of it. Right. So I think your, your point, it, family is not just given but chosen, mm-hmm. is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps both at the same time as well, right? I mean, you, there's you, always a level of givenness, yes. I mean, it, it's sort of like sexuality itself, to go back to that part of it. Yeah. Sex and gender are obviously not the same thing, but there are clear connections. Um, you know, gender construction always has some relationship to biological realities, mm-hmm. although there's an infinite fluidity. Yes, but I mean, raising that. a girl and a boy right now, I, it's clear that we're different. And absolutely. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. And our culture is one in which those that gender differences or gender construction tends to be based pretty firmly upon sexual difference. Yeah. Very interestingly. But not in all cultures. Right. I want I this want was part to... of our I'm sorry, this was yeah. part of our conversation yesterday in talking about ancient homosexuality mm-hmm. uh, or more properly, bisexuality, in which what we today think of um, as homoeroticism is simply um, structurally totally different than the ancient reality. So that the texts of New Testament right. scarcely are talking Don't the same speak kind to of... an experience that we're having now. Exactly. Do you need to adjust something? I just need to adjust this okay. Yeah. I think it's a crass form of editing. What? Censorship. <laughs> <laughs> Moving the microphone away. Moving the me. microphone away. <laughs> <laughs> I... well, no more of that, sir, please. <laughs> You know, for for uh, I want you to do a little bit of just uh, basic, you know, new creation one hundred and one. Yeah. Let's say someone's listening and they sure. don't know you're referring to this this overriding theme in the New Testament of new creation. Um, you know, say say some more about what yeah. that that theme of new creation in the New Testament and what that might have to do with marriage, family, sexuality. It's it's the element which is perhaps most lacking in, in contemporary discussion. Of the Bible. Of the Bible, mm-hmm. of Jesus, um, the historical Jesus phenomenon, which mm-hmm. basically right, tries which to... goes back to see what really happened and what That's didn't. right. Okay. And, and, and whereas Christianity, from the start, has always grounded itself on this, the experience of the resurrection. So when we talk about new creation, we're really talking about the resurrection experience and its implications. So what Christians claimed and presumably still claim when they pray to God through Jesus is that that the resurrection does not mean that Jesus was resuscitated and went back to his daily job, you know, that he didn't, that mortality was not uh, postponed, it was transcended, and that he entered into the very life of God, and that sharing God's life and power as Lord, the word Kyrios means the Lord God of Israel, is the title given to Jesus after his resurrection, has poured out this life and this power on humans through the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian reality. And there's different terms. So, for example, for Paul, Jesus is not the new Moses. He's the new Adam. Mm-hmm. He says, en Christo If anybody is in Christ, there is a new creation. And in Galatians, he says, circumcision doesn't matter, non-circumcision doesn't matter, but kinectesis, new creation. So in this new creation, Jesus represents a new humanity 
which is at some level continuous and discontinuous with the first Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, the first Adam was a living being, but the last Adam is life-giving spirit. Tonuma tozoyo puyun. And so that life-giving spirit is, is God. So if you take this strong reading of the resurrection, everything's up for grabs. <laughs> so that the structures of the new creation are in some fundamental way made not absolute but relative. They're not, they're, they're, they're destabilized by this eschatological sort of framework here. It's exciting and scary mm-hmm. to, to live within that proposition. So you're right. I don't think many modern Christians live with uh, uh, that in their imaginations or, or in how they go about the, the often very difficult uh, and mundane business of, I don't know, being married. Well, let me just say first that that's why there aren't many Christians. <laughs> I mean, Christianity is, has, and, 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 and actually these two topics come very close together. I mean, an argument can be made that Christianity is so acculturated to uh, conventional patterns of existence, whether we baptize capitalism, you know, whether we baptize war, whether we baptize you know, family, and simply take the order of creation and simply lightly sprinkle it and call it Christianity, and and all that we're being is simply conventional, is problematic on every front. But you're quite right. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people live their lives as though the eschaton was not on. And, And it can be said that perhaps the strongest language in the New Testament supporting marriage is this this imagery of Jesus as the bridegroom and mm-hmm. and the church as the bride but i don't i actually i don't know how people are to make sense of that in real lives i mean i'd be curious about how you have appropriated those kinds of images i mean is that really about marriage at all sure it is okay and I, how i think the danger i mean what I, as i suggested in my talk one of the one of the problems with that language is that it could actually be a solvent of the actual institution of marriage, mm-hmm, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so if Christ is the bridegroom, and we saw this in Roman Catholicism with nuns, for example, brides of Christ. I mean, yes. why go through the mediation of marriage when you can do it directly? And, and, and great mystics like Teresa of Avila, where you have that very strong, erotic imagery of Christ the bridegroom and mm-hmm. so forth. So a life of solitude uh, bypasses the messy sacrament of mm-hmm. marriage, which involves all kinds of complications, including children. But, but how do I appropriate it? I, I, what I look at, for example, in that passage in Ephesians is not the structure of the family, which is patriarchal and difficult for us today. Wives, submit to your husbands and so forth. I think the real point of that passage is not what Paul is saying to the wives, but what is Paul is saying to the husbands. And so I can appropriate that pretty clearly or pretty easily. And what he's saying is that if the husband is related to the wife as Christ is to the church, then the pattern of love within marriage is not simply um, a pattern of eros, of, of erotic love, or even simply a friendship um, in which you sort of enjoy the same things. 
But at its deepest level, it is self-sacrificial. Um, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, so husbands are to love their wives. Now, if we could degender or retransgender that and say that applies to both partners, mm-hmm. so that is not a subordination. In either direction. In e- either direction. Mm-hmm. Then the, the deepest quality of Christian marriage is to act toward the partner selflessly for the partner's interest and to children selflessly for the children's interest. I mean, it seems to me that, it, that most spousal relationships and most parenting relationships are most distorted when, they, when children are seen as an extension of the self or as a, a, oh, okay. a project of oneself. Okay. As the Which could look like... Uh, very intense care and oh, nurture bring, of the child. Oh, sure. I bring them to every soccer practice and so forth and so on. I'm just wearing myself out and them, by the way. All right. Uh, so that they will realize my dreams for them. So it's, but, the, but allowing the other to be other and to create that space uh, to give oneself for them in a way that actually makes them thrive and grow. This is, it seems to me, is how I read the Ephesians. All right. Well, all right. That's good. That's interesting. So you're not, you know, I think those words, selfless, uh, that that word is a hard one for people in the 21st century to hear and feel that it's healthy, right? But I think you you are actually describing something much more complex than than the abnegation of my. What you're saying, I think, is that you don't impose your needs on the other person. Yeah. Rather than that, you suppress who you are. Right. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Uh, I mean, in a in a in a culture of self care, mm-hmm. um, or to put it more bluntly, in a culture of narcissism, um, the cross is a hard lesson. And there's a lot of theological language and movements today that find. I mean, womanist theologians proposing that the cross is a uh, an impossible symbol for Christians. Well, I, I just, I just think that's silly. I do recognize very clearly the pathologies of, of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So that if the besetting, if you will, male tendency is toward willfulness, and clearly many, many women, Christian women, have suffered from willlessness. Mm-hmm. And so the language of sacrifice has been read and culturally inscribed as a passivity, as a subordination, as the, y'all just go have fun, I'll take care of everything, and so there's no self. So you're quite right. In order to actually be, to have agape, this kind of... Practical love of the New Testament. Yeah, of Mm -hmm. of Christ, Mm -hmm. one has to have a project of one's own. Faith is meaningless if I don't have something that I want to do. So, so it is a constant negotiation, a constant. Uh, you know, I, I, I apply this absolutely to my life in a, in as concrete a way as, as as trying to to cook a gumbo. I mean, that if if my if my little daughter came knocking at the door of my study when I'm trying to write a paper, um, that is the call of God to me. Daddy, come play with me. On the other hand. If I answer every time and go play with her, I make a tyrant out of her. Right. <laughs> if I never answer the door because I've got my project to do, then she stops knocking. 
And there's another loss. So this agapic love, this, this, this love of looking to the good of the other is never simple. It calls for um, what I call the asceticism of attentiveness. I mean, one really has to be alert um, at every moment to what, what, what are the real needs of the other and what are my own needs and how do I live in a way in which there is flourishing on both sides. On both sides. <coughs> Sorry. And this word agape that you're referring to is the Greek uh, term. Right. That, that, you know, it's, there are different ways, words for love, which, which connote different things that we tend to mush together exactly in the word right. love, right? So there's eros, which is a more erotic, romantic Romantic love. love, and that's usually the basis for marriage right. in the Western world. But agape is really the way of living in the New Testament, isn't it? Which that's is, right. has this, all this practice connotation of practical and care. Looking to the good of the other for the other's sake. Mm-hmm. And, and so, not for your sake. Not for my own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in between those two kinds of love, and I think very important for married life is the the middle term, if you will, is the love what is that's called philia, friendship, um, which I think is extraordinarily important. The friendship in our contemporary world has tends to be acquaintance, um, sort of a casual thing. For ancient philosophers and for most of Christian theology and Jewish theology, friendship is one of the most important philosophical topics because it, the friend is another self. Um, and there is an intimacy of not of gazing into each other's eyes, as Saint Azupéry said, but of looking together in the same direction. Hmm. And I think a marriage without friendship yeah, is not a real marriage. A marriage can lose some of the erotic element, can't lose the friendship dimension. Um, I think that so that the deepest Christian dimension of love is this dimension of agape, of self-giving, of mutuality, of, of somehow within marriage trying to, to live the life of the triune God in which life is given and received and thereby grows through the process of giving and receiving. So my wife and I, and I'm so grateful for Joy, who is this blessing every day to me, We've, all, we've talked a lot about how you know, to think of love contractually, 50% on either side, it's, it's so ruinous that every, each person has to give 100% all the time mm. for the sake of the other. And out of that giving, there is this marvelous growth in between. Mm. And, but let's talk about sexuality, which is the eros dimension of it. Um, something that I have been picking up here at this conference uh, something that I've been thinking about in the last recently is and I think that you present this in some of your um, papers that um, sexuality you know Paul also like Jesus didn't we don't was not married apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard people speculate that a Jewish man of his age must have been widowed at least. That he, but but we, we he was leading what looks like a celibate life, right? I think that's quite clear. Yeah. Okay. Um. So there's, but there's, so you can read some of what's in the New Testament and feel that it's that it's quite dismissive of sexuality. That it's a problem, right? That you sort of have to address, but you don't want to spend too much time on. But you can also read it that. It's acknowledged to be a powerful mm-hmm. dimension of life, 
and that precisely because it is so powerful, it's important that it be ordered yes. and, and that it be fulfilling in that marital relationship so that Christians can get on with all the other important things in life. Is that, is that a fair reading? Oh. I, think that's, I think that's a very fair reading. And I think the, the, the single greatest and most important text here is first Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, beginning really in chapter 6, verse 20, and extending all the way through chapter 7. And it's, it's a passage that's usually quite unfairly read. Um, this is the famous passage in which Paul says it's better to marry than burn. You know? Right. So, yeah, yeah, if you, you have to do, do it. it. If you got to do it, <laughs> yeah. do it. But a more careful reading uh, reveals that this is really quite a remarkable passage. It's remarkable, first of all, simply because of its gender equality. Unlike any philosophical text that I know in antiquity, he addresses both partners. Um, he addresses the man. He addresses the woman. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And he carries that all the way through the discussion. This is quite thrilling to me um, um, in terms of Paul's sense of gender equality. But in terms of sexuality, the discussion preceding chapter 7 is extraordinarily important, which is Paul's discussion about having sex with a prostitute. And what we get revealed there is... Yeah, he's criticizing other people having sex with prostitutes. Not. He's, yes, uh, right, he's or, not. or even hypothetically. Okay, it's not okay. quite clear that yeah. people are actually doing that. Mm-hmm. But he's setting up, in a sense, the, the, the minus and the plus of sexuality. What's going on here with sex? And why he criticizes having sex with a prostitute. It's not that it's dirty or nasty or something, but that... In contrast to some people in the community who apparently are equating sex with eating peanuts. I mean, they quote the slogan, food for the belly, the belly for food, as though all physical processes were self-contained systems and Mm -hmm. didn't have any sort of implications. Mm -hmm. Paul's argument is, is that when you have sex with a prostitute, there is a kind of spiritual thing, linkage that's made, which is destructive, which is not appropriate. So for him... It's not that sex is unimportant. It's so powerful. So that, uh, and, and he introduces into this passage language about us belonging to the Lord and our bodies belong to the Lord and the body of the community is the te- temple of the Lord. So to use your phrase, when sex is disordered, it has communal implications. It's not, it's not that it does something to my body, like I get warts, it's that it does something to our social body mm-hmm. of the church. Then, on the other side, this is why he agrees with Jesus that if you're married, you should not be divorced. You should make every effort to reconcile if you separate for a time. And why this remarkable sentence where he says, you can consecrate or sanctify your spouse if they are an unbeliever and consecrate your children. Now, he clearly means through sexual activity, Hmm. so that this intimacy of life together. So Paul says, if you are married, don't don't withdraw what you owe each other, right? This, what Christian theology then later called the debt of marriage. What a happy term, you know. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's like, so this is this contractual (laughs) obligation, you know, you owe me. But Paul's language doesn't really suggest that, but he, he, don't withdraw from an active sexual life except for a, a short period of time, except by 
mutual consent, and, and mm-hmm. except for the purposes of prayer, so that he actually envisages a robust sexual life, and one which, in which, through this erotic exchange, spouses and children become holy. Well, this is a pretty positive view of things mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. It's positive, but then Paul says it's not absolute, right? Right. So that if the, you know, the, and the difficulty for Paul is not that sex or marriage is a problem, but again, because he takes it so seriously, he says the married person is conflicted because of concern for the family. Now, the lesson from that is that if you're married, you ought to be concerned for your family. Mm-hmm. You ought to be conflicted as to whether or not you can mount the rampart or you know, throw yourself in front, of a, you know, in, in, in front of danger. You do have a care and consideration for your partner and for your children, um, which is a demand. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty positive view of, of what marriage is about, I think. And, uh, you know, it strikes me often that, that in our society um, there's a great... Well, there's a great obsession with sexuality in general, but but also, you know, what is dividing churches now is this matter of homosexuality, is different kinds of sexual lifestyles aside from marriage. But that in the sweep of the New Testament, there's much, much, much more teaching about marriage and divorce, which, you know, at the same time that that uh, that alternative sexual lifestyles have have grown. Um, you know the the institution of marriage is in huge disarray, mm-hmm. and that has happened without a lot of processing on the part of uh, or a lot of soul searching as far as I can tell you know tr- uh, on the part of Christian congregations trying to go back in and really worry about marriage mm-hmm. and divorce the, or worry about divorce the way they worry about other people being homosexual um, I mean, how do you read what the New Testament says about divorce? And and what that has to say to us today? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I'd like to pick up for your first comment yeah. about uh, we're uh, we're so sexualized, uh, or we obsess about sexuality. Whether or not we're actually more robustly sexual, I think, is a really open and interesting question. I mean, in some sense, we've become perhaps more voyeuristic <laughs> than actually embodied. I mean, there's this this, this phenomenon of. Um, the sort of pornographic phenomenon and this sort of hypersexualization of everything, but whether that actually issues in uh, robust, enjoyable, uh, simple sexual pleasure, mm-hmm. I think is, is open, mm-hmm. open for debate. Mm-hmm. But let me return to your question about uh, divorce, and I think you're quite right. In my view, homosexuality has become a scapegoat for churches uh, to keep them from focusing upon the genuine lack of engagement uh, with the very serious issues with sexuality. With heterosexuality. (laughs) And my argument is that uh, the church must be against porneia. The church must stand against sexual sin. Yeah, and porneia, I think it's very interesting. You know, you talk about what's happening with internet pornography, and, you know, the the Greek word that's used in the New Testament is porneia. Porneia. And and you translate that as sexual sin. Sexual, sexual yeah, immorality in the broadest mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. So it, it includes prostitution. It clearly would obviously include pornography and all these kinds of things. So the church has to take a stand against this. Uh, so forms of sexuality that are violent, that are manipulative, that are exploitative, that are breaking boundaries, obviously, all these things are, are, are clearly incompatible. 
that are non-covenanted. My argument about this homosexuality thing is, is that we need to sort of level the playing field a little bit and recognize that what counts for homosexuality also counts for heterosexuality. And so that if, if we're going to forbid porneia on one side of the ledger, namely homosexuality, we can't approve of uh, the baths or promiscuity and so forth, then we have to also look at the playboy lifestyle or the penthouse lifestyle or whatever you will, uh, uh, here in Atlanta, the strip club lifestyle, um, with equal seriousness. So um, the issues then of divorce that you bring up, this is really quite remarkable. If Jesus ever said anything seriously, <laughs> it's this, right? Uh, and it's reaffirmed by Paul. This, meaning? Divorce, don't divorce. You know, you, it's, it's not on. And yet, in effect, um, divorce has become a way of life mm-hmm. for Christians. Mm-hmm. And it's partly, that's why I remarked sardonically earlier in our conversation that there aren't many Christians. I mean, there are a lot of Christians in America, but there's not any church, I, I think is a more precise way of saying it. Right, and something that I'm aware of also in the New Testament is that it assumes that marriage is going to be supported by a exactly. community in a, in exactly. a, with, to an extent that we can't even exactly. begin to imagine. So two things. One, the nuclear family is not assumed. There's, a, you know, there's yeah. a larger kinship system that supports marriage. Marriage is supported in many ways, right? As it was in America throughout the 19th century, well into the 20th century. Um, rituals that attend such kinship systems. But on the other side, uh, then also, um, divorce um, is um, really taken utterly, really seriously. And, and so one of the problems with us in terms of church in America mm-hmm. is that we've become, it's consumer-driven. You sort of find the community that fits your lifestyle, and we're all deeply uncomfortable with the notion of a congregation that actually holds its members to account, or we hold each other to account. So, you know, the, the line, now you've stopped preaching and started meddling, right? Mm-hmm. I like listening to your sermons, but mm-hmm. don't actually... Mm-hmm. You know, ask me to be accountable for my life. And divorce, I think, is one of the great examples of this. Mm-hmm. We don't even want to look at it. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something that I, this will get cut out, but I'm in the process of getting a divorce from mm-hmm. my husband, who's an Episcopal priest. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I feel that divorce is a, is a terrible thing. You know, I'm sort of dis- dis- disturbed by how comfortable my nine-year-old daughter is because mm-hmm. she's so familiar with it as a... Now you're normal, finally. I'm normal. Yeah. Um, yeah so I'm happy, on, I'm relieved on one, the one hand, and I'm disturbed by what this means about what's happening to our society. Okay. Um, what I know in my own life and in the lives of many people of integrity is that it seems like, to a large degree, marriage is, you know, not humanly possible mm-hmm. these days. It feels like... Uh, yeah, not humanly possible. Mm-hmm. I think there are marriages where, you know, I think in any marriage it's sometimes not humanly possible and you live through those times. But right. but then there are many marriages which just get yeah. to that place. Okay. So what does the scripture say about divorce for people in our time who who experience that as the reality? I, th- I think first, I mean, there's, the New Testament is pretty unequivocal about divorce. I mean, so you have the sayings of Jesus saying don't divorce, you know, now, it's clear that this is a really hard saying from the beginning because we have it in an absolute form in Mark. 
And in Matthew's gospel, the saying of Jesus is repeated twice, once in chapter 5 and once in chapter 19. But we see that the Matthean community is already struggling with the absoluteness of Jesus' command by inserting an acceptive clause, except for porneia, or except for on chastity, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a wiggle room here. Right. You can divorce if, if your partner's uh, you know you know promiscuous or something or adulterous. Mm-hmm. And then Paul again he affirms the divorce thing, that is the indissolubility of marriage. But then he also goes on to say, but if an unbeliever chooses to separate and doesn't want to hang around, then the partner is free. So my point is that we see within the pages of the New Testament itself a struggle with the absoluteness of Jesus' demand. And that's partly because Jesus is envisaging the order of creation, and we actually are we claiming we're living in the new creation, but it's, we're also still living within the realm of sin, um, inadequacy, failure, and all of these things. Now, your question, though, is also, what should we think about these texts as we go through the struggles of life? And it seems to me that here, again, I want to bring this back to the level playing field with homosexuality and heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Plain fact is, we don't live by a lot of what Scripture says. And in a variety of ways, we seek to negotiate that gap between what we do and what Scripture says. Anybody who says they just live by the New Testament is just lying, either to themselves or to you. Number one, because it's impossible, because Scripture says such conflicting things. Right, you can't live all those different ways. You can't, can't live all those ways. You can't be a Presbyterian and a Roman Catholic simultaneously <laughs> in terms of church order. Uh, you can't be celibate and married simultaneously. At least I haven't figured out. Well, maybe some people well, have you, figured you out a way to do that. You tried harder to cross, stay on that fence than others. I did mine in sequence. Yeah. I didn't do it simultaneously. Right. Okay. But, um, so, and I think that, that, that what we need to come to grips with in some sense when you ask your very first question is, how do we read these things normatively? And they are not a simple script that we live. They really represent an ideal often toward which we strive. And I think that we have to, because if we don't deal with them that way, if we don't deal them, let me, let me reverse that. If we think of Scripture as something, a script that I simply enact, once I fail to do that, I've got to toss out the Scripture. I mean, hmm. there's no relationship anymore. Hmm. It's sort of like uh, I'm in a relationship with a spouse, and I've, I've uh, looked lustfully at somebody, and oops, I, I've already committed adultery, in effect, so let's split, rather than let's work to repair this, or let's get past this thing. Same thing with the Scripture stuff. So that I think that what, what the New Testament is presenting to us on, on marriage and divorce is an ideal. Um, and we fall short of it. But we don't want to eliminate those texts because we don't match up to them. Because if we normalize divorce, as our culture has done, if we view it as uh, something as trivial as changing high schools. Um, we, we, we really do weaken marriage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we just have sort of serial, uh, serial polygamy, in mm-hmm. effect, which is very, very bad for children, uh, very bad for, for becoming a robust human who is able to deal and work, as you said, through stresses, through hard times and so forth. So... I think that we have to recognize, and I, you know, I'm, I left a monastery. My wife is a divorced woman. I mean, I've struggled with 
these issues very much. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to have the text say what they're saying, recognize that we're not living up to it, and be really honest and self-critical about this. But if we're doing that, and we say, I'm still living within the church even though I'm a divorced person, and I'm, I'm going to try to live within that ambiguity, God help me, I can do no other. That's simply where I am. It's a place in which justification by faith becomes extremely important. Then I also have to apply the same thing on the side of homosexuality. New Testament clearly forbids homosexuality. But um, that same ambiguity is there. And I think that uh, we need to play fair and think it through. Okay. I think that's your last word. That was great. You okay? This was wonderful. Yes. I'm sorry for rattling on.